Number 13, Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Hello, Pino family. We're going to study today lesson 13 of Ephesians. But before we do, Barbara from Alaska is going to offer our prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we're so thankful for our Pineal Sabbath School class, for this opportunity to learn about you and to share with fellow believers. We're grateful for your faithfulness to us. And we have learned that the more we know about you, the more assured we are of your loving character. Lord, I ask that you bless Daniel as he's leading us today. Bless our discussion. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Barbara. And welcome, everybody, for lesson number 13 in the quarter on Ephesians. As we mentioned last time, there are 155 verses in the book of Ephesians. And in this lesson, we are going to cover exactly the same 11 verses as we did in the previous lesson, number 12. But this time, we are going to concentrate on the armor of God and take it up individually. So that brings quickly the opening questions. What memories do you have of sermons on the armor of God? Do you remember those sermons, either from your childhood or young adulthood? Now, I was nine years old when the Russian army or the Soviet army occupied Czechoslovakia, my country. Besides, every male had to do a compulsory military service in a communist country. And if you were a university student, then you had to do only one year of military service. But if you studied theology at university, then you had to do two years of military service. And of course, if you went to a military service as a Seventh-day Adventist, there was always the possibility or probability that you will end up in a prison because of the Sabbath keeping. My father did. He spent some time in uranium mines. There was an option that if you signed to go into coal mines and work there for 10 years, you could escape the military, two years of military service. The problem, when I went after the seminary at 25 to do my military service, and if I happened to go to prison because of Sabbath, then I would not be able to work as a pastor, because if you have a criminal record, then you cannot be employed as a pastor, because you are not a trustworthy citizen with a criminal record. So... I just could not understand the fascination of preachers with this military metaphor and how they could preach for an hour, an hour and a half of all the small details in the military equipment. For me, it was like the seven hills of Palestine. And I used to complain to my mom when I was about six years old, mom, (laughs) when will be the end? Soon, Danny, soon. He said, you said soon, and there's still 25 minutes since then. I don't care about the seven hills in Palestine, whether it was the Mount of the Law, the Transfiguration Mountain, or whatever. However, they counted seven hills in Palestine. So for me, I don't have very, very nice memories, but maybe somebody else has good memories of the sermons on the armor of God. Terry, tell us. I don't have very recent recollections of sermons on the armor of God, and I think most of my recollections come from when I was a child or a young teenager. It always left me feeling like it was a big, fat conflict, like we had to be very aggressive because we had the truth. And I wasn't interested in conflict. I didn't want to go out and aggressively attack people because I had the belt of truth or the headgear of whatever it was. That didn't sound appealing to me at all. Okay. Thank you. Larry? 
not being raised in that environment in America, when I was being raised in the 50s as a small child, the being a soldier was an admirable thing. And so, you know, little boys like to go out and play war and war games. So I was always fascinated as a kid with the idea, whenever they would talk and use this model about being a soldier and that idea. So it wasn't until much later that I began to not like it. Yeah, and fully understandable. Yeah. Any other perspectives, recollections, Henry? The connections that were made in my mind through the preaching of those sections were emphasized through the practices in Adventist church in those times of pathfinders with all the military gear, the marches and practices that were military-oriented and definitely not necessarily very loving, but showing the strength, the abilities dexterities to overcome the enemy or the environment that you were camping on. It wasn't later until not anymore a young child able to be influenced by others, but being a teenager, experiencing of having the ability to see the reality of the country that I was born in, that was in war, 36 years of civil war, Mm-hmm. for the positions of two different countries. And as I became aware of all of that and the influences of being the carnage of the ideologies of others, I started to dislike it. And it was a conflict because in my brain, there was this push on one side of needing to fight with an armor for getting saved and the spiritual realm. And on the other hand, not able to rationalize that with what I was seeing in reality because of the abuse of power and authority. Thank you. All right, so we have covered the same verses in the previous lesson, and here is the bottom line. Four times Paul uses the word stand. So he's not talking about putting on the whole armor of God because of fighting. Our job is to stand. Now, when it comes to listening to the sermons on the armor of God, did it speak about the individual or did it speak about the church? And of course, the question is, in Ephesians 6, is Paul talking about the individual spiritual warfare, or is he talking about how do we operate as a church in the war against evil? And we already said in the previous lesson that the warfare that the church is engaged in is not against people, it is against the spiritual powers. So it's not against humans, but all these powers of darkness and evil. But here's the key thought for today's lesson, for this lesson. What kind of fight is Paul speaking about in Ephesians 6? Is it individual believer spiritual battle or is it church's corporate war against evil? Yes, Rita? I think I used to think of it as on an individual basis. I suspect that's what the sermons I've heard about it were on about. But I'm thinking now in the context of the whole letter of Ephesians, when it's talking about a community and everybody being included in this community, this new community with Christ as its head and Christ only being complete once he has all of these others. This is a community standing against the evil forces. Yeah, very much so. So he's speaking about the shared battle against evil that applies to the whole church. Jennifer? I like the symbolism in Isaiah 
5917. And I'm wondering if the coat of armor that is spoken of in Ephesians could be something similar to what is mentioned there. It talks about God wearing justice like a coat of armor and a saving power like a helmet. He will clothe himself with a strong desire to set things right and to punish and avenge the wrongs that people suffer. Is that the kind of armor we should be wearing? in the battle we should be taking part in? Yeah, we'll go into the armor and what it represents. It's obviously a metaphor. So how does that happen? How does God bring his vengeance? How does he defend or rescue his people? How did he do it with Egypt? How did he do it with the Babylonian exile, returned from exile? And how did he do it in the exodus that Jesus was supposed to accomplish on the Calvary cross? What kind of weapons were used defeating his enemy there? Now, we certainly know what kind of weapons the leaders of the chosen nation decided to use against him. When Pilate says, I don't understand your endless discussions about blasphemy and the trivial points of your law. So if you feel that he's blasphemous, then sort him out. You can stone him. The death penalty for blasphemy was stoning. But they say, no, 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 that's not good enough. He needs to die by crucifixion. Because if we stone him, then the first stone that hits his skull is going to knock him unconscious and that's it. And he does not experience any suffering after that. But if you nail him to the cross, then he's going to die for at least 16 hours in terrible pain. So that's what we want for him. And for that, we need your approval. So now you collaborate with us and get him crucified. So in what way does Isaiah 59, 17 apply for God's victory or claiming of his people or defending people on his side? That would be an interesting thing to ponder. Let's go to Michael. Yeah, you asked, was this collectively or individually? But Ephesians 6 begins with a sentence of children, obey your parents and honor your mother and father and fathers and slaves and so forth. Individuals, not collectively. Chapter 5 from verse 21 to 6-9 are these house rules. So in ancient households, there were these house rules that applied to every different group. And so that's why he addresses the husbands, the wives, the children, the parents, and the slaves, and the masters. But that section ends in verse 9, 6-9. And then comes the final conclusion. And of course, in English, it's not that easy to see, like for example, in German, because in English, you singular and you plural is the same. But in other languages, you can see from the grammar whether the author is talking in singular or whether he is talking in plural. And so when he starts the final section, verses 10 to 24, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, put on the whole arm of God so that you may be able to stand. Is the you singular or is the you plural? Take a guess. And if you don't want to guess, then verse 21, so that you may also know that I am, how I am and how I am doing. Tychicus is going to tell you everything. Is he talking to individuals or is he talking to the whole corporate congregation? Peace be to brothers and sisters. Verse 23, grace be with all who have undying love for our Christ, Lord. So it's very obvious that he speaks about the plural, about the shared battle of the church. And I still remember, and it was actually John McVeigh, who is the author of the quarterly, 
who first turned my attention to this, that we apply it individually, but in the text, it's very obvious that in Greek, he speaks in plural. He speaks to the community. That in the Roman Empire, individualism in battle was regarded as characteristic of barbarian warriors, and that he's not going to support this. He's supporting, but you are a different type of community. So where does the individualistic understanding come from? Because we didn't get it from the text. We got it elsewhere. Because in the text, it's obvious that he speaks to the church as a corporate body. Uh, Anthony? The verses speak more to singular activities. I don't go get dressed with people. I get dressed by myself. So when he talks about putting on armor, I put it on me. I don't put it on everybody. So it's more of a singular kind of concept. Sure. So once you use the metaphor of the Roman soldier, how he's dressed, then it's singular. But the whole thing is addressed to the whole body. In verses 18 to 20, he speaks about praying for all the saints. He speaks about the powers of evil. And in 3.10, he says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So these are the ones that chapter 6 speaks about fighting against and how the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed to them through the church, not through the individuals. So in the context of Ephesians, it's very obvious that he's speaking about the corporate shared battle against evil. So how come that for most people who will be listening to this lesson, this comes as a new thing. They never heard it before. They never heard it in sermons. Where does this individualistic interpretation come from? Nancy? I remember you mentioning periodically that we think differently than the Judean mind. What we think as individuals, is it the Greek? Are we more of a Greek slant? So we don't think like they do. They thought very differently than we do. And I got that from Dr. Duda. (laughs) It's Greek versus Semitic. Semitic asks, pourquoi? For what purpose? What's the goal of something? So you will learn that Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew one twenty one. But it will not tell you how Jesus was born. So the Greek mindset asks how. It's analytical. How was Jesus born? If 23 chromosomes come from the mother, so he got 23 from Mary, where did he get the other 23? So that's a typical Greek question. Where did the chromosomes come from? While the Semitic mind would ask, for what purpose was he born? To save his people from their sins. So yes, thank you, Nancy. Henry? When I read the verses, all of this section from Ephesians 6, in Spanish, I mean, it's very clear that it's plural. Speaking when he's talking about putting the armor, putting the helmet, it's speaking to more than one person. It's very, very obvious and clear. We cannot miss it in Spanish. It's very, very clear, strong. But remembering to all of the preaching and studying throughout my Adventist history has been always pointed as an individual task, something that you have to do by yourself because salvation is individual, because you have to do it yourself instead of relying in a community and feeling in a safe environment. So sadly, I will say that we get convinced through the opinions of others, even though you are able to read it clearly and just by listening to them and taking their word for granted, not even stopping on thinking what you are reading has taken us to a solitary position of facing the enemy by yourself because this is your own battle. And that's sad to recognize that we are having our members of the church thinking that they have to do it by themselves. Yes, Henry, thank you. And what are the consequences of this 
worldview of this approach, for example, for surviving the eschatological crisis? How does this mindset then operate when we all have to go through the time of Jacob's trouble, persecution at the end of ages? What is this individualistic mindset going to do to your understanding of what survival looks like? It is a miserable position. Imagine that we have to do it by ourselves. You won't be able to open that you are broken, that you have difficulties because you cannot lean into anybody because then you are putting yourself in risk. You disqualifying yourself between others instead of finding support in the family. And the important thing is that you survive, that you are saved. So whether it's Montana or whether it's Highlands of Scotland, as long as you can escape the evil of the world and you are there surviving yourself, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Who cares about the rest? If they go to hell, that's their problem. As long as I survive, as long as I am saved, that's all that matters. While if you understand what Paul is talking about in Ephesians, he says through the church, something is going to be revealed not only to people, but even within the universe. Something is going to be seen in a completely new light. And remember, in the previous lesson, we finished on the idea, our job is not to fight, our job is to stand. And what are the contemporary forces of evil and darkness? We had some excellent remarks from Ashley, from Bobby Joe, and from Sean. He had some amazing applications. And now you can see our task is to help one another in this struggle. So that when the enemy puts into your mind, oh, I am not good enough. I may not make it. I am too sinful. It's not easy to fight these thoughts, these ideas on your own, because you don't have an objective perspective of yourself. Other people know things about you and us better than we do, because they see us from a different angle. And once you understand that in Ephesians 6, Paul is talking about the shared battle, we can see that we are here to put arms around each other and see one another to the kingdom, that it's our corporate responsibility to carry the burdens of one another. Yes, there is a burden that everybody will carry, as Galatians says. Yes, as Larry put in the chat, I need to put on my arm. If I don't get out of bed and don't put it on, nobody else is, can put it on me. But it's also my duty to help you with your battle, with your armor, so that we can be victorious together. So we have a shared responsibility rather than this pharisaic, you know, climbing the ladder of sanctification and looking down at everybody else. Come on, guys, where are you? Why can't you be at least as holy as I am? And so Jesus comes and shows that their holiness is based on the list of exclusions who they can exclude, while Jesus includes and shows the father is not the celestial policeman but the loving father who includes everybody livius i was a little stuck on the question of whether this was uh plural or singular i can see that he's talking to a community and then i think anthony mentioned that these were all individual tasks that have to be performed and i was thinking that an army is not going to go out and fight unless all the soldiers are wearing their gear and so there is an individual aspect that we have here to load up this equipment because if we don't we can't help our brother who's in the trenches with us we can't effectively help each other if we're not all equipped with the right equipment i don't know if i still am but i was kind of i wasn't getting the point of how this can be the whole church because you have to do it initially first the church is built up of individuals okay thank you anthony i'm going to kind of second what lavius just said 
So when I think of singular and pearl, I don't see that this is exclusive to one or to the other. I think very clearly we have particular marching orders that are singular to us, but we also, we have marching orders that are to the group. In other words, if I'm a coach and I say, you need to go out and fight hard, I can say that to the group and everyone needs to put their best effort forward. But I'm also saying that to the whole group and they need to go out as a group and put the best effort forward. I don't see an exclusionary aspect to how we think about this plural or singular. Yeah, so it's definitely not either or. There is definitely a role that each individual has to play. And it's important. Nobody can say, I don't count. It doesn't matter. They will collectively win without me. My contribution is insignificant, irrelevant. No, everybody's contribution is important and everybody makes a contribution. But ultimately... We need to see this high view of the church that Ephesians has. And both because of our individualistic society, because of our Protestant heritage, you know, it's not my priest, not my father, not my mother. It's me, O Lord, standing here in front of you. We do not see this corporate dimension because our individualism overrides. As long as I am saved, that's all that matters. But that's not what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that will be revealed through the church, this rugged individualism. On the contrary, it's going to be this rich diversity and the tapestry and the working together, how we help one another, picking up one another in the fight and being wounded and helping to see each other for the kingdom. Lou? So at the very close of time, there's a description that those who have been connected to Christ, that we will perhaps have a sense that we're going to be lost, that we will doubt our own salvation in a sense. And I don't know how that really fits in for all of us who know our loving God and believe that he will see us through. And yet when it comes to the end of time, we will be wondering about our own salvation somehow. Isn't that in there, Daniel? Sure. So how does that fit with this? So these are the things that the enemy puts into my mind. Am I good enough? Have I been forgiven? Have I done enough? These thoughts do not come from Christ. And my job is to put on the whole armor of God, to be strong in God's strength, so that I can fight these ideas and say, in him I am more than sufficient. Because I am not fighting for victory. I am coming fighting from his victory already achieved. Does it help? Good. Thank you. Jennifer? Yes, I like the idea of us helping each other on this journey towards the kingdom as opposed to having to be doing this all on our own because it seems like if we're thinking we have to do it all by ourselves, it either can make you kind of militant or it can make you flee and afraid. And I have some friends who got caught up in the movement to move to the country because they thought that that's what we should all be doing. And anyways, it was not a good experience them and the community that they ended up there and saw lots of pathology and they left now and have realized that that was not God's plan for them. But they're bitter, kind of bitter towards the church for having been caught up in that because they felt that the church propagated that ideology. And so they're trying to refine their place in our community now. So it's a delicate balance and a delicate dance to find one's place in the church and to see what we can do to help one another and to not get caught up in this fear that I think the devil plants in our minds, like you were speaking of. He's so good at that. Yes. And guess what? Who will be the best in understanding this corporate identity? The people who understand the great controversy background, right? 
because they are aware not only of my individual role as a soldier in the battlefield, but the bigger picture, the larger reality, the strategy. The strategy of the devil is not unknown to us, as Paul says, but we also know the strategy of God and how he achieved the victory. So you would expect that people who understand the great controversy background of what's going on in the universe, they will be in the forefront of having this corporate understanding how we are going to see each other and support until the kingdom, because it's not an individual battle. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed throughout the whole universe. Yet you realize that we are more children of our own culture, American individualism, Protestant individualism, than thinking through our theology, what the great controversy model is trying to teach us, or what God is trying to teach us through that. You are the generals who can see the strategy of both God and the enemy and behave like that. True generals feel responsibility for those soldiers. They are not like Napoleon who march on the back of the soldiers as long as they get. They are not like Stalin who don't care about the number of soldiers who die, but they see the value of the community because Jesus died for it. Jesus did not die to forgive my sin, full stop, period. Jesus died to incorporate me into his body, which he calls the church. The forgiveness of my sins is only a tool to make me see how important role each one of us plays in the bigger plan of God. Michael Bell? The problem I see that people can fall into is this notion, do I measure up? Am I good enough for salvation? And rather than thinking my salvation was merited a long time ago by Jesus the Christ who died on a cross for me. And what I have to do is be willing to accept that. And the corporate body of the church is probably the best way to collectively do that very thing. Yes, so there is a role for the church to play. Thank you. All right, let's go to the individual parts. So if you look under number four, since we are fighting against enemies in the spiritual realm, why do we need equipment for both offense and defense? That's an interesting question. But let's read verse 14, which starts with the fourth verb, stand. So three stand were used in verse 11 and verse 13. And then let's pick up from verse 14. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, so he starts with this belt that holds the whole arm together. You can have all the pieces protecting your head, protecting your breast, proper shoes so that you can go through the difficult terrain. But what is it that holds it all together? It's the belt. And how does he interpret the belt? What is the belt around your waist connected with? Yes, the truth, Henry. Thank you. Why is the truth important? That's holding the whole arm together. Like this belt that was buckling up the soldier. What is the main attack of the spiritual forces or the forces of darkness, forces of evil? Where is the battle going to be around? Yes, Anthony. There's truth and there's lies. It's as simple as that. Yes. So if the Christian message is not true, then it's meaningless. Now, psychologically, it can help you, but it's based on the fact that it's not alternative facts. It's not fake news but it's true. It's a full truth. It's not a partial. There's nothing mixed. It's complete. And that it holds together. Henry? In all disputes, wars, there are two different positions. 
And both of them are arguing that they have the truth, that they have the just position, right? It has to be that way to be in two opposite poles. And we were mentioning a prior lesson, the importance of having the picture of the great controversy. And we know that it all began because of a lie. And so this is why this is so important to begin with understanding the truth. So then we will have the why of the great controversy and find the solution of it. And that is basically discovering the truth. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So because the battle is in the mind and for the mind, the deceit is so dangerous. And that's why it can take you downward spiral that you start believing these lies that the enemy is trying to put into your mind about how sinful you are and how God will not accept you and there is no hope for you, etc. Or that God divides the world, us versus them as we do, and there are two sides and we are certainly on God's side, but everybody else is on the wrong side, etc. etc. And we had a good applications of this in the previous lesson. Dan? I actually had a question. Can we look at this analogy more like, is it comparable to when Paul talks about the body of Christ, about the body and the different parts working together? Or is this something that we should all have components of this ourselves? I like the idea of this being more like a body where some people may be strong in, in truth, other people may be strong in faith, and that collectively we help each other in the battle. Or compassion, somebody right. stronger in that. And none of us has a perfect understanding of the truth. We only see one angle. Back to the elephant's metaphor. And we help one another to get a broader, wider perspective. Good, thank you. Notice also the breastplate of righteousness. The justice here, it's more vindication. Just as God vindicated Jesus by resurrecting him, God is going to vindicate his children by saying, here they are, I am proud of them. They are my daughters, they are my sons. Remember, Satan is portrayed in Revelation 12 as the accuser of brethren. Now, of course, sisters as well, they just didn't count them in those days. But that means Satan points out the wrong things that you have done. And God's response to that is, oh, that comes to me as a surprise. I didn't know that. Thank you for pointing it out. You showed me something new, right? No. God's response is, and by the way, I know even things which you don't know because you can't read the mind. And I know things which are happening in the mind. And all of us are guilty sinning more with our mind than indeed and with our body. There is a limit how much your body can sin, especially the older you get, the more fragile it gets. But there is no limit how much you can sin with your mind. And so God's response is, but I am not a legalist. I am not concerned with that. I know things which you don't know, but there is another aspect of reality which you are overlooking. Remember when he attacks Job? By attacking Job, basically Satan is attacking God. Because you misread the Job's heart, that proves that you misread my heart and kicked me out of heaven, which was not fair. So the attack on Job is ultimately the attack on God and his character. And God's response is not to deny, oh, no, 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 Daniel is a saint. No, my guardian angel knows that I am not a saint. But there is other reality to all our failing and sins. And that is the aspect of justice, of righteousness, of vindication. Just as God is putting the whole world to rights, God is putting even though nasty bits into a new perspective. And that's what he is in the business of doing for the whole universe. Henry? Could that also be 
that since we are all invited to wear this breastplate of righteousness, that once I understand the truth, I am fully aware that we all are broken. And then I will treat everybody with righteousness. The right thing to do is not attacking other that is just as broken as I am, but as loving because of the truth of God that is transforming me. So this invitation to collectively wear this breastplate of righteousness is an invitation to be like God, to treat others like he is treating us. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go to the next one, verse 15. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Okay, so how does he connect and lace up your sandals or shoes in preparation for the gospel of peace? So notice he's talking about the whole armor of a soldier and he connects the shoes with the peace. Now, wait a minute. He's just using a military metaphor and he says... And you need to have these special shoes that allow you to progress in whatever the terrain, whatever the environment. And can you hear any antecedent reading there when he connects the shoes with peace? What is he talking about? If you look under number six, yes, you have the text there for your reference, Isaiah 52, 7. So what is he talking about? Why does he connect the shoes with peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who says to Israel, your God reigns. Your God is a different kind of a king. You may think that you are in exile, but your God is still powerful. He's still there. So can you unpack this, that the shoes are connected with peace? Why is this significant for understanding the armor of God? Larry? The obligation of the soldier of God is to bring peace. This soldier, with that metaphor, who's standing at peace, is able to go and bring protection, bring love, bring peace, that in that worldview, a single soldier represented a calming effect if things were getting out of hand. Ellen White makes comments about how for evil to win is for good men to do nothing. The soldier brings peace, not war. Thank you, Jennifer. To be taking the good news of peace to someone, you have to walk to get there. You aren't just standing. You're making an effort to take this truth to someone. So I'm wondering what the connection is with the whole standing thing, because to be active in this taking the good news to people, you have to go and walk. You're not just standing in one place. Sure. So eight times in Ephesians, he mentions peace. And four times between verses 11 and 14, he mentions standing to contrast with fighting. He's talking about the armor of God, but our job is not fighting. Our job is standing. Now, of course, that does not mean that he knows nothing about fighting. He says, I have fought the good fight of faith. He tells the Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. So there is a role in fighting, but it's so easy for us to see the enemies, our enemies as enemies of God and fighting people and lose the perspective that our job is not fighting, but standing in the power of Christ. Yes, there is something that we need to do, but this is another proof that he uses eight times peace in Ephesians, and he connects the military boots with the work of peace and proclaiming the gospel. Rita? If your feet are properly shod, then you're ready for any terrain. As they say in this country, in the Lake District, 
there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. Yeah. So if your feet are properly shod, then you can cover any kind of ground. And the other thing is that if you take off your shoe and shake it at somebody or hit somebody with it, you're insulting them. At least that's what I believe was the case in that culture. It certainly is still in Middle Eastern cultures. So if if your shoes are firmly bound on your feet, then you are not taking them off to insult anybody. Thank you, Michael. I served in the infantry for six years. And they spent a lot of time when I was first in boot camp, made sure that the boots that were issued to me fit well. It's essential for that. And this footwear that Paul is talking about is the footwear of peace, which to me means also love. That's the essential message of Christ was to love one another. And the best way to convert anybody is by peaceful means and trying to show compassion and love for people. Thank you. Lou? On the topic of peace, I used to be an EMT volunteer. And in an emergency, when people are in great distress and hurting and fear and crisis, there's nothing like having some people that know how to deal with that emergency appear on the scene. And it immediately helps them to calm down and know that something's going to be done to be helpful. And I think as time goes on in our world, it becomes more and more threatening to so many people with all that's going on. If we have that connection with God and the Holy Spirit that gives us the peace, no matter what's going on around us and wherever we are, that that will be noticed by people who are in distress, that we're not in distress, no matter what's going on. And it'll give them a great deal of comfort and hope in their own situation. So I'm just very thankful that as a group and individually, we can help to spread that kind of comfort to people who are in a crisis. Thank you. Henry. It's so important, Paul's invitation of wearing this essential part of this armor, the purpose of that these shoes to expedite the process of delivering peace. It is very counterintuitive to think that you are in a war and that you have to bring peace. But if we understand that the great controversy began because of a lie that has been spread through Christianity, basically that God is angry, that God is vengeful, and that God is keeping an eye on you and we better watch out our actions and thoughts, that only develops fear, develops enemies of God. And so no wonder why humanity struggles with a lack of self-esteem, with fear of God and guilt. So it is so important for the church to, as a collective entity, starts to heal that damage that the life has made, bringing peace, because we have found it ourselves and we are willing to share it with others. So this is so important that wherever the boot of the soldier of Christ comes, peace is brought there. Not revolution, not oppression, but peace, because who God is, and a new perspective on his character, as Henry just said. Neil? We have to look at something occasionally. Paul was riding in the middle of what has been called Pax Romana, probably about 200 years of unqualified peace and prosperity. 
And therefore, he would see the Roman soldier as a member of a peace corps, basically, bringing peace to those around them and settling things down. We're looking at it in many ways as we would look at it today and the mess that's going on in Europe right now. But he was looking at peace. He wasn't looking at war. He was looking at these people who were the peacekeepers, actually. They kept the peace. So, yeah, they had to be armed because there were those that were against them. But we sometimes have to backtrack and look at how things were 2,000 years ago. Okay, thank you. Let's go to the next part, and it's the shield. If you look under number eight, shield was the wooden piece soaked in water and covered with this bronze or leather, depending on the price that the army could pay. But the purpose was to guard against the attack and to quench or extinguish the fiery darts the arrows dipped in pitch and set on fire. Now, in the Old Testament, God is presented as the shield of his people. And I gave you some text there. More than 20 times in Psalms, God is presented as the one who is the shield. For example, 7.10 and then 84.11. God is my shield who saves the upright in heart. So God is presented as a shield, and let's go to 84.11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. So he's the sun, he enlightens, he brings perspective and light, and he's the shield, he protects us, and he's not going to withdraw anything good from his people. Remember the first attack of the serpent on Eve? I'm surprised that you consider God your friend because he withdraws something good from you. And the Psalms know God is the shield of his people. How is that important, significant in the cosmic battle? This perspective that God is the one who protects, who is the shield. Jennifer? Well, it talks about how at all times carry faith as a shield. And faith means trust, right? So you mentioned earlier the attacks that the devil makes on us, giving us these bad ideologies, bad thoughts about God and everything. And so if we trust God and know him as the loving, trustworthy, non-arbitrary, non-revengeful type of person that he is, then we are able to withstand those attacks of thoughts that the devil tries to put in our mind. Okay, thank you. Iris? I think Job serves as a good example here when his friends basically say, look, you've done something wrong. You're in trouble with God. And the fact that you have this means that you've blown it with God. He's not on your side. He's against you. And I think, yeah, that is sort of a similar perspective here. It's distorting the truth about God. Yes. And if you don't understand that God is your shield, that God is the one who is defending you, then who is going to defend you? Yourself. Mm -hmm. And what's the best defense? Attack. Attack, <laughs> offense. The problem is that somebody is going to get hurt in the process. And so Paul wants you to realize that in order to stand and to withstand the attacks of the enemy, you need to see God as your defender. Because if you don't, you will start defending yourself. And let's admit how often we are on defensive, how often we create this mentality that if you don't support our independent ministry, then the whole world is going to go down the drains because we are the only ones who God has still in this universe. We are the defender of fidei, the last defenders of faith that God has. Even Jude 3 is used as defend the faith once given to saints, while the Greek says agonizomai, agonize. 
It's the inner struggle. Is God going to defend me? That's why we talk too much, more than needed, because we have the need to defend ourselves. But 20 times in Psalms, more than 20 times in Psalms, God is presented as the one who defends his people. And if you can deliver things to him, God, you know the reality. I don't have the need to defend myself in every little small things. Do you know that in Germany, if they know that you are a Seventh-day Adventist, they will not allow you into a PhD program in theology. And you know why? Because they say you are always on defensive. You have this need to defend your teaching. And if you are defensive, you can't learn. And the whole purpose of the PhD program is so that you learn something, that you discover, you make an original contribution to human knowledge. But if you are constantly on defensive, then you are not learning. And so it's so important to see that God is our shield. He's the one who defends us. And so often our own attempts to defend ourselves are just a futile effort that show how broken we are and how desperately we try to present ourselves in a better light and that we don't rely on God, who has equipped us with everything to stand or withstand these attacks of the enemy. Now, there is something that you and I are going to miss easily because we don't live in this Roman world and we are not familiar with the equipment and the armor of the Roman soldiers. So if you look at number nine, you can read Roman soldiers also carried two javelins to throw at the enemy. Now, where are the two javelins in Ephesians 6? No, nowhere. They are not even mentioned. So why is it significant that Paul does not mention the two javelins? Nancy? That reminds me of last week's study, that we're to just stand, we're not to fight. And we are not to attack anyone. Yeah. Our fight is not against humans, is not against people. Our fight is with ideologies, with evil, dark forces, the ideas. And you don't need a javelin to attack an idea. You need the truth to unveil the truth. And by the way, instead of that, what is Paul mentioning? Instead of the two javelins? Prayer. Prayer. That's right. He mentions prayer. Uh, Livius? Well, I was thinking the javelins aren't there because the evil one has flaming darts. Those are his javelins. And so we use the shield to distinguish the flames, the flaming arrows, the flaming javelins. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's what I was thinking when you said, why aren't the javelins there? Which is very interesting. It's easy to miss for us who live in 21st century and are yeah. not acquainted with the Roman soldiers. Henry? Yeah, instead of javelins, we are being invited to use a sword. But a sword that it is not even ours, but it's the word of God. So what he has been saying all of this time. So notice, instead of the two long javelins that you throw, he uses this short two-edged sword. And he says, but it's a sword of the spirit. And he identifies it as the word of God. So let's unpack that, especially in light of the lesson number 10. So two lessons back. How does the word of God work? Why is the spirit so important when we speak about the capacity of the two-edged sword? Where does it work or who does it work on according to Hebrews 4.12? Henry? It doesn't work on the enemy. That's right. It works on me, on myself. It works on me. Cutting me where I don't want to be touched. Going into the most inner parts of my soul where I don't even dare to enter because I don't want to face my brokenness. And the spirit is able with a gentle touch to go into those parts and bring ointment, bring healing, bring the truth that God is able to heal my brokenness. Dan? I don't know too much about Roman armor, but I think I remember that the short two-edged sword was used in very close infighting so that when you're right up against the enemy, you pull out the two-edged sword and 
thought with that. So it may be that this could be a metaphor for when we're really in contact with the enemy, that this instrument is especially useful. And it's significant because he doesn't say, so you can attack at a close range. So when somebody comes to you, then you have something effective that you can attack them. On the contrary, he shows this is the work that the Holy Spirit does on you. Livius put the text there for you. The division of soul and the spirit, the joints and of marrow. We would say today the innermost part, the corners of our soul where you don't dare to enter because you are scared of what you discover. We are all more broken than we dare to admit. But the Holy Spirit can gently go there and brings not condemnation, brings healing, brings assurance, brings power. Livius? I wonder if the missing javelins are because you throw the javelins where with a sword, the sword of truth, you exercise it in proximity, in close proximity to the other person. So we don't just, I was thinking, we don't just leave pamphlets at the door. We actually have a conversation. We have a relationship. We're close, close by. That's right. Because that helps the healing. The purpose is not to condemn them so that they have the word that is going to condemn them at the judgment. The purpose is to win the soul. Rita? The sword, which was a what they called a short sword, was the Roman soldier's main weapon, because I presume because that was always in his hand. Once you've thrown your javelin, it's no longer available to you, but your sword in your hand is always available to you. I don't know whether the peacekeeping Roman soldiers on the streets of these towns would carry a javelin with them, but they would always have their sword with them. And it only works at a short distance because it was a short one. Yeah. All right, Jennifer? Well, the only weapons that God can use are truth and righteousness. And I like the verse in Hebrews that you were just mentioning about that the word of God works on us. And it says in that same verse, it judges our desires and our thoughts of man's heart. And even though we think we know God, we're so far off even in our best intentions. I just wanted to give an example. My father died in 2012. And before he died, he was first kind of wheelchair bound and then was bed bound. And the only times that I ever got to go see him was on a weekend. So usually Saturday, I would fly up on a Friday because he lived far away. And then I would come back on Sunday. So I would be spending Sabbath there. And my father's life was football, and he would be constantly watching football on TV and sports on TV, and he would do things like play cards and things like that. Well, (laughs) being a good Adventist like I was, I would go up there and I would think that, well, I cannot watch TV and sports on Sabbath, so I would take my little books with me and I would read and turn my little chair so that I was not watching sports, but I would be in essence with him, but not partaking of the sports, which I thought was wrong. And I didn't think that I could play cards on Sabbath either and things like that. So I shudder at the picture of God that I gave my father. Fortunately, near the end, I think God touched me and made me realize, you know, Jennifer, this is his whole life. I think if I was down there, I would watch football with him. I would play cards or whatever because it's the kind thing to do. I mean, I just feel so bad the impression I gave him of God. And finally, at the end, I realized, you know what? If I'm spending time with him, the kind thing to do would be to participate with him in those little pleasures that he had. And so I finally did. But, I, you know, after way too much time had gone by. And I thought I knew God. And I was 
in some ways angry that the church that I went to made me into that kind of a person who was not compassionate and kind to my own father. Because I thought that God would be angry with me if I watched football on Sabbath or played cards with my father on Sabbath. Now, I sort of thought I knew God, but Mm. the things sometimes we think we do and we don't. So God has to keep like peeling the layers on an onion and and showing us, no, no, Jennifer, that's, that's not right. I'm like this. And what is the kind, compassionate thing to do? Not what are the standards of my church that I think God's going to zap me if I do this or don't do that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that story. And it's a nice example where you can see, everybody can see how you can take an application, which no question was a valid application in certain context and certain time, and turn that application into a law, into a rule. So that in a different context, the rule becomes more important than the relationship, than people. And that's the problem with lack of discernment, that we want to have some rules on the wall that tell us in this situation, this is what I am supposed to do, instead of asking what's the most loving thing that is going to help these people. Like Jesus heals the invalid, but the Jews are concerned that he's carrying the mat. How many grams, uh, how heavy was that? That was trifle. But they don't see the person that was helped. They see the mat. It's being carried on Sabbath. And they discuss how big can be the handkerchief so that it's a handkerchief and not carrying a burden on Sabbath because you carry something of certain weight. So thank you very much for that example. All right. The last one there, it's mentioned the helmet of salvation so you need to protect your head not only your breast so that your heart is protected the life vital functions but also the helmet and notice he connects head with the salvation if god doesn't win your mind he doesn't win the war and we talked many times about the significance of the millennium and that god says before the destruction of satan we need to make sure that we have killed the lie Because if God doesn't win the mind, he doesn't win the war. Then the problem is going to reappear again. And so that's why he speaks about the helmet of salvation. All right. And instead of the javelin, you have the prayer as a final weapon. So let's read verses 18 to 20. Pray in the spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly, as I must speak. Okay, so notice, as we said under number 10, Paul began his letter with an extended prayer in chapter 1. Then he added another prayer in chapter 3 which he is praying for the people in Ephesus. And as we mentioned, not only in Ephesus, but in Laodicea, in Hierapolis, and possibly some other churches like Colossae in the valley of Lycus River. And then he says, and you also pray for me. Your prayers are equally important as the prayers of the apostle. Here we stand together. I pray for you. You pray for me. Here is the mutuality of the body of Christ. Here is what we do for one another. Lou? 
in response to what Jennifer was talking about in her own personal experience, when we look at the life of Jesus, he always put people first over the law. It was the Pharisees that held people to the law, but Jesus held people to his own love standard. And unfortunately, in our own denomination, we have churches and preachers and people who don't always deal kindly with individuals that don't meet up to their own standards of law. And that is such a misrepresentation of God. We're told that religion has done more to mar the true picture of our loving father than just about anything else. So I think those of us who are part of this group who understand about a loving God and not a harsh, judgmental God, that we can do a great deal to help mitigate that kind of mentality that the law comes first and that we can just demonstrate love and we can go right up beside somebody who's struggling and give them a hand of encouragement, a hug a listening ear, or just our presence sometimes when people are struggling, rather than a judgment according to the law, which is so harsh and cold, and that's not who God is. Okay, so that's why we have the rule. We are not going to put down Catholics and Jews and Muslims and mention other ministries and preachers because we are not in that business. Instead of throwing a javelin, we throw a prayer in that direction. Henry? And I really appreciate that last comment because we may ourselves here feel so safe, right? That we have the right picture and that can give us the position of feeling better than others. So that's a constant call to us every single day to keep that humbleness. And I believe that this is what Paul is talking about here when he's asking for prayers. Is that humbleness? He is already saying everything, right? He has been already writing all of this letter. And at the end, he still says, I am still doubting that I'm able to say this in the right and proper way. So please be with me so I don't mess up. That is so amazing to me that Paul presents himself as a fragile human being as well. So imagine that openness to the people that he has been writing and saying, but by the way, I am in risk as well. And I don't think that prayer is basically, may sound like a heresy. I'm not against prayer, but it's not a magical thing that if we pray, something's going to happen. It is the collective again. If you are with me on this, if we are in agreement with all of this, you will be praying with me. That's a sign of collective work because we believe in the same thing. Yeah, and imagine that St. Paul, the famous apostle who wrote the majority of the New Testament, 14 epistles, says to people in Hierapolis, guys, I need your prayers. I am praying for you. Please remember, you need to pray for me as well, because your prayers make difference in my life, in my ministry. Okay, time to conclude. We read about Paul being chained to a Roman soldiers. He says, verse 21, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus will tell you everything. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So he ends a letter from a prison with peace, love, grace, and faith. So here is Paul 
chained to a Roman soldier and a Roman soldier is guarding him. So this is how it worked. The soldier would do a shift guarding a prisoner like Paul, so chained to him. And then after eight hours, when the shift is over, another soldier would come and replace him. And there is a whole rotation of soldiers coming in and coming out. And so Paul is writing in Philippians 4.22, And all the saints here in Rome send you greetings, especially those who work in the palace of Caesar. Now, that's kind of interesting. How do the people who work in the palace of Caesar know about Christianity? How the saints in Rome are sending the greetings to Philippians. Don't you love that? How Christians came to be in the palace of Caesar? Well, these guys are chained to Paul, and they think that Paul is their prisoner. But Paul said, no, 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 you cannot run away from me. So I have eight hours now. You are the prisoners of the gospel. So he asked the question, what have I got to lose? And the answer is nothing. So I am going to give my life to the one thing that matters, which is living in and extending the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And that's why I am here. Why would I not do it? These soldiers are my prisoners. They have to listen. They cannot escape. So let me use that opportunity. And he ends his epistle by saying, let's turn it around. In spite of the fact that, and look at poor me, here I am for preaching the gospel This is what I get in return, sitting and rotting here in the prison. This is my reward. No, he says, actually, God is at work. God is at work bringing things together under one head, that is Christ, putting all things together, retelling all stories, all history. And how does God do it? Do you remember how parts of your life can be retold? How things that happen sometimes that you didn't like and enjoy Now, years later, you can look back at them and smile and laugh about it. And something that seemed so terrible when the rain destroyed your Pathfinder expedition or something bad happened to you, now you can recapitulate it in a new way. And Paul says, and this is happening right now, not only with your personal story, but with the story of this world, with the story of the whole universe. And God is actively involved in that. And not only God does it, it brings joy to him. This is something that God enjoys doing, recapitulating, retelling the story, putting the things together, all the parts, warts and all, even those bad and ugly and terrible things, because they are all part of one story. Yep, N.T. Wright was right. If the reformers concentrated on the Ephesians rather than Romans and Galatians, the history of Europe could have been very different. Now, you and I can't undo what happened 500 years ago, but if we understand Ephesians in the right context, in the right perspective for our own lives, it can have a transformative influence on our lives and on our communities of faith. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so thankful for this opportunity to consider what it means to stand in this struggle against the principalities and powers of evil and darkness that are still at work in our world more than ever before. We live in a world which is so hopelessly polarized that sometimes it's easy to lose hope and perspective and to think that either these things will not end up well or that we are the only ones who are on your side left just like Elijah did. And so thank you for a new assurance that the victory has been already won 2,000 years ago, and we are to stand in that and see how you can put all things together, even when we cannot imagine your victory, your perspective, that you are still at work. 
And we pray that in coming days and weeks, this becomes a reality for our personal lives and also for our community of faith so that we can support one another and help those who are struggling, who are losing hope, who don't see any perspective, any future, so that because of what you have done, people can get a new vision of who you are and the future that you have for this planet and for the role that each one of us can play. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.